Coming to you direct from the heart of New York City, all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP Jazz War Report. Mahatma Gandhi once said, the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. Today's story is about how a woman lost her two grandsons in the Oklahoma City bombing on the 19th of April 1995 and then went on to develop a relationship with the convicted terrorists in order to find peace within herself and in the process extend forgiveness. This woman's story is one of tragedy, compassion, truth and the biggest challenge of all forgiveness. Our guest today is Kathy Sanders, whose story of this journey is reflected in her book called Now You See Me, How I Forgave the Unforgivable. Welcome to the show, Kathy. Thank you. It's good to be here with you. Give our listeners a brief account of what happened on that tragic day. Well, April 19th, 1995 is branded into my memory. I'll never forget waking up that morning. Uh, my young grandsons lived with me. I, I walked into their room to wake them up, and they were not there. I was shocked. I walked down the hall, and sometime during the night, those little boys had toddled down the hall and gotten in bed with their mother. They spent the the last night of their life in bed with their mom. They were laying there, one on either side. I flipped on the light, and I sang, Good morning to you, good morning to you. We're all in our places with sunshiny faces. What a nice way to start a new Wednesday. In our home, it was a group effort to get the boys ready, and I just remember putting their little shoes on them and brushing their teeth. Well, last night I tried imagining how I would feel if I was in your shoes. Um, I couldn't. Uh, in my mind, I was trying out that scenario in my head, but, you know, I didn't have the courage to even imagine it, and it actually brought uh, tears to my eyes thinking what would happen if, if my children went through that. What prevented you from going crazy? Because, you know, this sort of tragedy has no explanation. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, it was the most difficult days of my life. You know, I was a Christian. I'd been raised in a Christian home. I had prayed for those little boys all, my, all of their lives. That morning when the bomb went off, I'm just praying, oh, is this a bad dream? I, I just wanted to wake up from it. I would see the parents of their surviving children would get on TV and they would say, oh, uh, we just prayed and asked God for a little boy to hold, and God answered our prayer, and here's our boy. And I'm thinking, well, where's where's our boys? And it was the difficult days because when I saw Chase and Colton's casket lowered into the ground, uh, my belief system was challenged. I didn't, uh, I, I just couldn't imagine that there even was a God. I, I just wanted to die. I prayed to die. I thought about killing myself because I didn't want to live in a world in such with such pain. And so what made you want to live again? Well, uh, I've, during that time, John Walsh of America's Most Wanted came and spoke to a group of survivors. He looked at us in the eye and he pointed his finger and he said, you will grieve and you will grieve deeply, but you will survive. Up to that point, I didn't know if I would survive or not. You know, people were saying things to me like, well, the trying to comfort me. Well, the boys are in a better place now. I didn't care if the boys were in a better place. I wanted them with me. Uh, I just, John Walsh's words resonated with me because I knew what had happened to his son. His son was kidnapped. All he got back was his little boy's head. And this man gave me the courage to think that maybe things would get better. And I began uh, to plead with God. It's like, God, I don't know if you're out there or not, but if you are, you better help me. I, I need help. 
Well, the key element in your book is about your journey of forgiveness from the way I've read it. Um, and by the end of the book, you've developed a relationship with the convicted terrorist, uh, Terry Nichols, to the extent that now you refer to him as uh, part of the family. So I'm really going to go out on a limb and let you know that, you know, I'm, I'm really not a very intelligent guy. Um, I not only suffer from stupidity, I actually enjoy it. Um, <laughs> but I find it personally so very hard to forgive. And I've had many pastors on this show who've preached on how to forgive and forget. Uh, I don't suffer from amnesia, so I can't forget. Uh, and instead of forgiving, at best, I choose to forsake. And there are so many elements in your story. You know, you have grief, there's compassion, curiosity, anger, hatred. Uh, I did not expect forgiveness to the level uh, that you've taken it, which really is beyond belief. So let me start by asking you, in your journey in all of this, what is the definition of forgiveness to you? Well, what I've learned from this process is that forgiveness isn't an event. It's a, a process. I never woke up, Vip. Never did I think, you know what? I think it'd be a good idea to forgive the guys that killed my grandchildren. It just didn't happen. It was a process. Mm. And I guess the very beginning of the process of uh, forgiveness is baby steps. And you're right. You don't forgive and forget. I, I don't know where that even came from. You know, do you think I could possibly forget Chase and Colton? There's a hole in my heart that I'll take with me to my grave. I, I can't ever forget them or what happened to them. But you know what? I can forgive the people that did this because by forgiving, it's a gift I give myself because now instead of having... Uh, two pains, the pain of losing the children and the bitterness, I only have one pain. And my b first baby step began when I attended the trials of Terry Nichols. I went out in the hallway when the court was in recess, and I saw a little woman out there. She had on a long black coat, and she looked much like the Aunt B persona off of the Andy Griffith show. And I saw people talking about her, but not to her. When I realized that it was Terry Nichols' mother, I went over to her, and I began to introduce myself. And she said, I know who you are, and she began to cry. I put my arm around her, and I said, I want you to know how sorry I am for what's happened to your family. And because I believed that she was the forgotten victim, nobody wants their child to grow up to be a mass murderer. And that was the first step that the first baby step that led me along the path that eventually took me to the learning to forgive. But then on page 67, you said in your book, forgiveness ushers a sense of peaceful relief. Um, your process of forgiveness, how, how, you know, how many steps did it take? Because for me, if I was to consider a, a, a process of forgiveness, I think the first act would be revenge. Uh, because that neutralizes the pain I have incurred. Well, uh, that's And then I begin to find peace within myself. I certainly understand that. But what I found in my case, harboring uh, unforgiveness, bitterness, revenge, was like drinking poison and expecting the enemy to die. The one that was hurting was myself. But then is part of the process of forgiveness also 
to fall in love with those who harm you? Because that's what you would say to Terry Nichols uh, over the phone, and I, I don't get that. Well, it's a, a not in love like a man and a woman. I'll clear no, 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 that up. No, Just, no. Uh, no, I... Terry Nichols, uh, it, it was a long process. Let me back up just a ways. Uh, after meeting his mother, we became friends. Uh, we began to eat lunch together. After the federal trial was over, uh, Terry Nichols wrote me a letter. And I looked at that letter and I thought, oh, man, I don't want a pen pal. I, and I sure don't want the bomber as a pen pal. But during that time, I was looking for the truth about what happened in the Oklahoma City bombing. And I, you know, we'll talk about that, the journey that I took. But my first thought was, you know what? Who's going to know more about the Oklahoma City bombing than the bomber himself? I think I will write back to him because I was willing to dance with the devil to get to the truth. But doesn't forgiveness require an understanding of why the sin was committed before forgiveness is granted? No, I think forgiveness is unconditional. I don't th- it's not conditional. You don't have to someone doesn't have to tell you they're sorry. Uh if you wait for that uh, you might be waiting a long time. Hmm. But how does one get to understand the situation? You know, why did it happen? Um uh, why me? Well, I learned uh asking yourself the why question will hmm. kill you. Because, as I said, when I watched those parents on TV that said, I just prayed and asked God for a little boy to hold. He answered my que- my prayer, and here's my boy. Well, I decided uh, long ago, I don't think God's up in heaven, and he doesn't just say, you know what? I'm going to cherry pick. I'm going to save this child and this child and this child. I'm going to let these die. I don't think he does that. I think the world and our life just plays out. And it's what we do with the hand we're dealt. I'm not so sure. So I quit asking why. I think the why question just leads you to misery. But at any point in time, did you ever consider that forgiving meant losing a certain degree of self-respect? Because what you're effectively saying is that I don't like what you did to me, but it's okay that you did it. No, what I found that uh, forgiving allowed me to sleep a lot better. And and let me make clear that uh, forgiveness and punishment, that's two different things. Did I forgive Terry Nichols? I did. Do I think he should be punished for what he did? I absolutely do. So isn't that at odds with forgiving and punishment? I don't think so. Hmm. Now, you would pray for McVie and uh, Terry Nichols. I did. I didn't know. What was in your prayer? Uh Well, prior to the bombing, I prayed to God much like he was my genie in the bottle. You know, I'd wake up in the morning. God, I need you to open this door and do this and this for me and, you know, help me pay the rent. I'd like that new job. And it was very superficial. After the bombing, I didn't didn't know how to pray. Hmm. You know, I had read this scripture uh, in the Lord's Prayer Uh, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You know, what does that mean and how do I do it? I don't know, but I'm looking for answers. And I said, Lord, evidently you want me to forgive these guys. I don't know what to do. 
But I lift Terry Nichols up to you, and I lift Timothy McVeigh, and just ask you to just show me the way. I, I don't know how to how to deal with this or what to do. Is is forgiving in your in your world? Is is forgiving and judgment almost the same? No, no, I don't. Uh, one of the things when people ask me uh, about forgiving, I want to make sure that everyone understands. I don't expect everyone to do what I have done, and I don't judge anybody if they don't uh, follow suit and forgive. Like my son, he found Chase and Colton after they were killed. Uh, My youngest grandson had been gutted by a glass shard. My oldest grandson he found in the back of a refrigerated truck being used for a makeshift morgue with a big rock in the back of his head. My son said to me after reading the book, Mom, I respect what you've done, but please don't ever ask me to do that. He said, if I was left alone in a room with Terry Nichols, one of us wouldn't be coming out. And you know what? I understand that. Uh, I understand the the people that can't or don't forgive. I'm just telling my story, and in my story, forgiveness worked very well for me. But you see, I, I can understand if you forgive and then forsake and then move on. But what what happened was you forgave and then you formed a friendship. That's where I find it bizarre, and that's where my head is twisted. Because after reading your book. It had a huge impact on me that this forgive and forsake, I get that. Difficult under Wait, these circumstances. Do you think if you forgive and you forsake, did you forgive? When you, when, when you take the word forsake to mean abandon and let go of the poison that's within mm-hmm. you, that's what I mean by forgive and forsake, and you move on. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I've moved on. Yes, you've moved on, but now you've, you have a bond with uh, Terry. That's where I need to be enlightened. Uh-huh. Well, some things I can't explain because I don't understand them myself. Like when, uh, that's why my book is called Now You See Me. I waited 19 years to tell my story. It was just a year or so ago that I shared with my friends that I had had Terry Nichols' son come stay with me one summer. He spent four nights in my home. That's right. His mother had called me and said, you know, Josh hadn't seen his dad in four years. They had just executed McVeigh. Josh hung out with McVeigh and his dad. Uh, He was very troubled. He was having problems. I said, well, if you're coming to Oklahoma City, you're welcome to stay with me. And she said, oh, I don't think Josh would be comfortable doing that. Uh, And I said, well, at least come by and have dinner. So they came by and had dinner. They wound up staying for four days in my home. And Josh and I stayed up late at night. He told me how the kids had nicknamed him Bomber. He told me how he would randomly get beat up for no reason. His life took a nosedive as well. My heart went out to him. I thought, again, he was a forgotten victim. I was surprised. I didn't take him out of my home. I didn't want my neighbors to know that they were there. I didn't want the media to know they were there. And on the third day, Josh asked me, to take him to the memorial, and I agreed that I would. And I knew, Vip, when I got to the memorial, and I'm standing there in front of the chairs Mm. that represented the lives of my little grandsons, Chase and Colton. I'm standing there with the bomber's son. I knew I'd come a long way. Yes, you have. 
I interviewed one of the pastors a few weeks ago, and he had written a book about relationships with people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I asked him, I said, can friends of my enemies be friends of mine? And he said, definitely not. Um, you can't have someone playing uh, two sides. Uh, in the same way, the enemies of my children cannot be friends of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, but once again, I mean, you've made your children's enemies, which is Terry, uh, your family. So I'm still trying to get a, a grip with that. You know, it's it's very difficult for me as a mere mortal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, to understand that concept. So well, enlighten me there. I don't understand it myself. I found it amazing uh, and in enlightening it changed my life you know i don't i don't know how to explain to you the supernatural it was not something i was looking for it was not something i expected do you think there was so so much turmoil within you uh that you had to start being i guess um ruthless in 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 knocking out what was troubling you in order to find peace within yourself uh well i don't know as you know from reading my book in the years after the bombing, mm-hmm. I spent a great deal of time uh, investigating. Yes, you did. I went to places like the Aryan Nation compound where it was, uh, I had been told that Timothy McVeigh had been there and he had, they had uh, helped shape his hateful ideals. Uh, when I was there, they were, uh, driving up to the compound, I see a big sign that says, For Whites Only. There's a Nazi swastika painted on the top of the roof. I walk into the the uh, church. They're wiping their feet on the Israeli flag. Uh, when I go into the auditorium, there's a life-size bust of Adolf Hitler. They sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, and then they all raise their hands and do the Heil Hitler. The men and the children are in Nazi uniforms. Pastor Butler begins... Uh, his sermon by saying that God had laid a new message on his heart and he tells me that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter and that Timothy McVeigh is a great man and a martyr for the cause. He begins to weep as he tells me how sorry he is for my little Aryan grandsons that they had to die. You know, I've been, I've gone to great extents uh, to find answers to my questions and I haven't had all my questions answered, but in this journey, I learned to forgive, and I found a peace. Had I gotten all my questions answered and not learned to forgive, all I would have is the answers to my questions and two dead little boys. I wouldn't have a smile on my face today and a song in my heart. Now, when you started your relationship with uh, Terry Nichols, did you know about his past in full? Because... Obviously, from the book, and I did a bit of my investigation of my own, um, he got this mail-order bride from the Philippines, and, and when she arrived, uh, she was already pregnant from another man. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, th- this particular child died at the age of two under his care. I mean, he's got such a bizarre background. Did you know all this? Yes, I, I knew all that. Yes. And, and despite all that, you were still willing to uh, confront him? Uh, yes. As a matter of fact, his... Uh mail-order bride, Mara Faye, at Terry's request, uh, well, you know, I spent that 
a long time talking to Terry on the phone. We got to know each other very well. And Terry said, you know, there's something different about you. My my wife, Mara Faye, she needs to, to meet you. Uh, she, you know, I'd, I'd like for you to reach out to her. So I did. She brought her two children, uh, Terry's youngest children, to my home. They played with my new grandson that was born two years after the bombing in Chase and Colton's room. And you I, gave them toys as well from Chase and Colton. I did. I did. And Mara Faye asked me, uh, why you do this? Why you forgive him? You know, she was very angry herself because his her affiliation with him had also destroyed her life. But again, those children were victims. Uh and I felt sorry for them. Did you ever realize that, you know, Terry being a lonely man, did you ever realize that being alone himself, he would look to anyone for compassion and maybe you were the only one who gave it to him? Uh, well, yeah, that's certainly a possibility. I mean, he spends 23 hours a day in his cell alone. He gets out one hour a day. Do you think he was using you? Because when I was reading some of the excerpts from the letters, um, there was something about him requesting crayons and, and colored paper. And, uh, and and I found that odd because, you know, he's in no position to be asking for anything except mercy in his life. Uh, you know, I don't stand in judgment of anyone. I was just doing what I felt like was the right thing for me to do. So this was actually to then to encourage more communication, maybe if you sent stuff. And, and you even sent money, I believe. I did. His phone calls, even though he was there in Oklahoma City, mm-hmm. uh he still had to pay $3 a call to call me, so I I sent money to him. I did. I just got the feeling sometimes that he might be using you as a meal ticket. Well, if if he if he does, I guess that's his problem, not mine, because I was doing the right thing for my life is how I felt. And I, and I don't believe that he was. Now, you said your, your visit to him in jail touched him deeply. How, how Did he actually tell you that he was touched? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, the fact that anyone in Oklahoma City was willing to forgive him, much less someone that's grandchildren had been killed. I mean, that's pretty powerful stuff. It is. Because even on page 232, you said you have you were feeling sorry for him. And, and I had trouble coming to terms with that because is that part of the process of forgiveness? Well, the, as I got to know him and I attended the trials, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what his part in the bombing was. I think he was definitely involved and he should be punished. Um, his own jury, you know, they, no one established the fact he knew the building was going to be blown up with people in it. And and I don't know. And he's a bad. The, what he did was horrible. It was bad. I'm not trying to justify that at all. But I did feel sorry that he was so isolated. I I think had he never. Here's why I'm mm. having to think this through as we talk. Yes. I think had he never met Timothy McVeigh, he wouldn't have gotten involved in anything this diabolical. And I think he got in too deep with Tim. And when he tried to get out, it was too late. In and McVeigh had, had threatened him. You know, I I always wonder what makes people do something so evil. That's why I went to the great lengths to do um, my investigation. Uh, when I went to Elohim City, 
the terrorist training compound in southeastern Oklahoma. Uh, I was met by men with guns. It was horrifying. But I had learned there was an ATF informant there who had warned her handler on three different occasions. People from this compound had made rendezvous to Oklahoma City with the intent to blow up the federal building. You know, I needed to know more. I think uh, what kept me going on the investigation was that there was just so many unanswered questions, and I don't believe everybody was uh, arrested and caught for their part in the bombing. There was a man that uh, went with this informant to target buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, McVeigh called him there at Elohim City the week before the bombing, two minutes after calling the Ryder Truck Company. He was never interviewed by the FBI, and he was allowed to leave the country. And yet, uh, the FBI interviewed thousands of people in regard to Timothy McVeigh, including his uh, third-grade school teacher. So my book is really not about the investigation, but I have to tell my story in the investigation for you to understand what I've forgiven and how I've come to the terms of peace in my life because I don't have all my questions answered. You see, I could have understood forgiveness to a certain extent if he'd pleaded insanity. He didn't. But for him to fall victim to someone else uh, while being sane of mind uh, is not an excuse. No, it's not. And he doesn't get pardoned for that. But he gets forgiven. That's right. (laughs) And he should be punished. Punishment and forgiveness are two different things. Now, in your book, you're desperate to keep your meetings with Terry a secret, but now you've written a book about it. So what's changed and why? What's changed is uh, my friends convinced me that this was a story worth telling because people find it uh, amazing uh, that I was willing to go to these places like Elohim City and the Aryan Nation. But what they find more amazing is that I was able to forgive Terry Nichols and that I actually uh, ministered to his family and had them there to my home. Certain parts of the book, you know, when you felt sympathy for Nichols, uh, Terry's environment in, in jail, I mean, he was being in solitary confinement, but he was telling you about other prisoners screaming at night and how he could not get a proper night's sleep. Um well, you know, he's not staying at an all-inclusive resort. No, that's, um, that's right. He's worried about how he can't sleep. Mm-hmm. What about the sleepless nights, you and the victims of the other members of the family? Um, I don't get a lot of feeling of him feeling sorry about what he's done. You know, I, I just found it. And then um, he seemed to file this 39-page handwritten lawsuit against the Colorado prison where he's staying for violating his uh, religious and physical dietary needs uh, by not giving him whole foods. Um, in the lawsuit, he's requested 100% whole grain foods, fresh raw vegetables and fruit, a wheat brand supplement, digestive bacteria and enzymes. Um, again, you know, this is not the, the, the Ritz-Carlton. No, it certainly is this not. This is part of the punishment. I, I'm in agreement with you. So did he ever discuss this with you about his living conditions? And did you ever tell him that, hey, forgiveness and punishment are two different things? I never said forgiveness and punishment are two different things. Uh, 
we just talked on the phone quite a bit, mm-hmm. and there wasn't, you know, we as we visited, uh, he's just telling me I, the things that he's aware of around him. You know, it's hard, and he was he he was sorry. He, he expressed sorrow for what he had done. When he expressed that, what made you feel that it was genuine? Well. You know what? It's not up to me to judge him if it was genuine or not. No, but did I, you instinct feel that he was genuine? I felt, yes, I did. I did. Because never underestimate the power of instinct. I did. His birthday is uh, April 1st, <laughs> and he told me that he was the biggest fool of all. He certainly regrets what he's done because it killed 168 people, and those families' lives were certainly destroyed or shaken. But he blew up his own life, too. Did he, you ever ask him if he regretted it had he not been caught? Because mm-hmm. staying in solitary confinement and, and not getting um, Michelin-starred food, mm-hmm. I might do that to you. But did you ever f- say, did you ever ask him that, you know, had you not been caught and you were living uh, free and had done this, and, and uh, would you have still felt sorry? No, I hadn't. I, I've never asked him that question. Now, your motive was forgiveness in this journey. I wonder what his motive was in accepting you. What do you think his motive was? Well, Terry told me that uh, he had asked God to forgive him and that he had, you know, and there again, I'm not the judge. This is not about judging, no. I'm not judging him. It's about what you felt. Uh, I felt he was sincere. I think he had a life-changing experience, and I think he is regrets what he did to our families and his. Do you think he ever managed to gather that you're a religious person, so if I speak from the perspective of God that I can keep this communication with you going and at least have someone from the outside world that I can speak to? I don't. Well, I mean, that's certainly a possibility, but I don't think so. I think he was in awe at the forgiveness that I offered. I think it was a life-changing thing for him as well. Now, at some point in all of this, you were prevented from communicating with Terry. Did you think maybe the prison system would obviously listen to your calls and maybe thinking that you were getting too emotional in your relationship? No. Where that came from Mm. was that 60 Minutes wanted to do an interview with Terry Nichols, just like they did with Timothy McVeigh. Ed Bradley went in and interviewed him. Well, Terry wouldn't let Ed come in and interview him. The only person that Terry trusted enough to do his interview was me. And 60 Minutes wanted the interview so badly, they said, you know what, we'll, uh, we're going to make an exception, something we've never done. We're going to let you be the correspondent and go in there and, and interview him. And then when you come out, Ed Bradley will interview you about the interview. Well, when we put the request in for me to go in, the prison wouldn't let me. Uh, 60 Minutes and I, it was over a year that we battled with the prison to let us in. The warden deemed me a security risk to the inmates, to the staff, and to the public at large. And I'm thinking, gee, you know, I've been a housewife. I bake cookies. I don't have a criminal record. I did get a speeding ticket once, but there's no reason... Why would the prison not let me in? I don't know. It was very frustrating to Terry. He wanted, he had something he wanted to tell me. Uh, I was, uh, 
then when they we realized we were at the end of the line, I got a call from Terry, and he said, I want to get my story out there, Kathy. It was almost like he was afraid for his life. He said, I want to tell you what happened. He said, um, I'm going to call you. Let's do a telephone interview. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, great. Do that. And so he had to schedule a date to when he would call. And he said, I'm going to call you on this date. He said, be in New York and have him uh, hook your phone up, and I'm going to tell you what really happened. Well, 60 Minutes was ecstatic, as was I. After all these years, I'm going to learn what happened. I go to New York. I'm told when I go in there that Ed Bradley is very sick. And they said uh, if he's unable to do the interview, we'll have Katie Kirk do the interview with you. Well, we sit and we wait and we wait and there's no phone call. Then we get word that Ed Bradley has died. We clear this set. In a few days after that, Terry's mother called me, and she said, Terry wants you to know that the day he was to call, the prison notified him that I was taken off his calling list, and he had been calling me all these years, and his own attorney was wanting us to get this interview, and he said, this interview is going to blow your socks off. America is going to be shocked at the things he has to tell you, and so I never got the interview, and his mother said, If you want this interview, Kathy, she goes, you come to Michigan, you be here next week, he's going to call me, and we'll just do the interview from my call. I said, oh, man, that's great. Let's do it. So I call 60 Minutes. They're all excited. I go to bed that night, and I start thinking about it, and I think, you know what? If I do this, they're going to take his mother off of his calling list, and she's not ever going to be able to talk to her son again. I can't do that to her. So I called 60 Minutes, and I said, I'm sorry. And I called his mother, and I said, we're not going to do this. So if he has something to say, then why why doesn't he use his lawyer to issue some sort of a communication? I don't know. That's that's a good question. I'd like that. I'd like to hear what he has to say. If he can call the lawyer's office and you can go to the lawyer's office and speak with him Mm -hmm. there, Mm -hmm. that's a possibility. It certainly is. I won't argue that. Hmm. Let's talk about how your act of forgiveness has impacted others. Um, You're the grandmother. Let's talk about the mother, who's your daughter. Yes. How does she feel about what you've done? Um, Edie's on my side. During that time that I had Josh Nichols in my home for those four days, I hadn't even told Edie that he was there with his mother. Mm -hmm. And she called after a couple of days of them being there, and she said, what are you doing, Mom? I said, well, I'm talking to Lana Padilla and Josh Nichols. She goes, you are? And I said, yeah. And then Lana's all excited because we've been eating there at the house, and she said, I want to take you girls out. And I said, Edie, would you like to go out to dinner tonight? Lana would like to take us out. And I could tell Edie's kind of stumbling, and she goes, well, I guess. And uh, so she agreed to meet us uh, to come over to the house, and we'd go to the restaurant. Well, when she got there, she said she was going to have to leave early, so she wanted to take her own car. So Lana... And my new grandson and I get in my car, and Josh is about to get in my car. And Edie says to him, she waves at him, Josh, come over here, ride with me. And Josh rode with Edie. 
and they followed us to the restaurant. After, after the evening was over and Edie went on to her appointment, uh, Josh got in the car with me, and he's shaking his head, just shaking his head. And I said, what's the matter, Josh? And he goes, I don't get it. And I said, what don't you get? He goes, uh, she likes me. Look what hmm. my dad did, and she likes me. I said, Josh, you're not you're not. And how old was Josh at the time? He was 16. Wow. He was 16. But did Edie ever think, your, your daughter, did she ever think that maybe you've gone too far in the process of forgiveness where you've incorporated or think of him as, as part of the family, which is Terry? Well, I don't know if I've ever said that he was part of the family, but I, he's, I, ha, I have forgiven him. If I referred to him as part of the family, it would be part of the Christian family. We don't call him Uncle Terry. <laughs> right, 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 right. No, because you say Terry Nichols and I are now family without being relatives. That's right, because right. we're part of a Christian we family. We share an invisible bloodline made possible through Christ. That's right. So did Edie ever think that maybe you've gone too far? No, I don't think so. I think Edie found the same uh, grace and the same ability to forgive that I did because it changed our lives. But in this journey where you went to the uh, Aryan uh, compound, Yes. Uh, you made all these trips. She wasn't with you. Uh, no, actually, she went to Elohim City with me. So she was also very concerned about finding the truth. Yes, yes. We wanted our questions answered. I'd still like to have my questions answered today. Why that 22 people saw McVeigh downtown that morning and not one saw him alone. I'd like to know why Judge Mage placed all the security cameras that were around the Murrah building under seal. We mm -hmm. still haven't been able to see him today. If nobody was with McVeigh, why couldn't we see him? But my book isn't, we talk about that, but my book is about learning to forgive. Yes, it is. Because I might never have my answers, but I'm going to be okay without them. Did the other families of the victims from the tragedy believe in what you were doing, or did they want to be part of this process of forgiveness? Well, my book just came out, so I'm not sure how the other families are feeling about the process of forgiveness. I will say that years ago, when 2020 did a special about our findings and our investigating, and they ran the story from the fire chief and the bomb squad being downtown and stuff, that uh, that was just too ugly for a lot of people to uh, even consider. And when I attended the trials then, uh, some of the families were very angry with me. And I think that's one of the reasons I formed such a bond with the Nichols family and why I sat with them during the trial and ate lunch with them. But after the trials were over, they were left with questions, and many of them have come back and apologized. And again, I'm not saying... Those families don't have to forgive. I'm just saying this is my story and this is how I handled it because we all handle our grief differently. Yes. You know, I'm left thinking not only how compassionate you are, but let's get a little uh, spiritual here. How would those who died unnecessarily, how would they feel about what you've done? What do you think? Well, I don't, know. I don't know what they think. They're in heaven. What would you like them to think? So when you go up to heaven... Um, and you meet your two grandsons. I'd like for Chase and Colton to say, good job, Nani. 
a good job in terms of uh, forgiving Terry? Yeah, I think... Or a good job in terms of that journey you made? The journey includes forgiving. I think the whole thing. I think, you know, my, my book reads kind of like a detective novel. It does. A whodunit it does. thing. But it's also the memoir and the the journey of the forgiveness. It was the truth I wasn't expecting to find. Do you think you were more passionate about finding the truth than than your daughter? Uh, because you seem to be leading the way. That That's probably true, yes. And obviously it's hard to compare grief, but was she grieving more than you? Uh, no, I think during that time uh, Edie was desperate. Uh, she had lost her children. Right. I think she wanted another baby. I think she wanted another child that had that same gleam in his eye that Chase and Colton. I think she was on her own journey, but I think she was uh, my fan club. There's one part in the book that I want you to tell our listeners where the new baby that was born was Glenn. Yes. There was one night that something woke you up. That's and that's almost like uh, spooky. Well, we have to back up just a little ways sure. because the night the babies died on April 19th, 1995, my husband and I go in there and we go to bed. In the middle of the night... We hear this enchanting music, familiar, uh, started playing in the baby's room next to us. We get up and we go into the bedroom, and it was the little carousel horses, a little porcelain carousel horses. And yeah, That would freak me out. It was, it was freaky. It was like we just looked at each other. It's like, what is that? And I didn't know what, what to think of it, and I just took it as a sign from God that they're okay, that children are okay. Then it's, I'm trying to put a date on it, it's uh, two or three years later mm -hmm. when my new grandson is born, when my husband passed away during this time, I talk about that in the book as well. Uh, I'm there by myself. Edie brings my little grandson over, and it's the first night he's to spend the night with me. That's right. And I tell you what, I had a hard time with it when I'd rock him and I'd sing those same lullabies I sang to Chase and Colton. The tears would stream down my eyes. It was heartbreaking. I almost felt like I was be betraying Chase and Colton by loving this new child. And I had him in my house to spend the night, the first night. And once again, in the middle of the night, no one there but that baby and I that carousel went off again. Yeah. And I walked into that room and I looked at that carousel and I just took it as a sign from God that it's okay to love this little boy. Forgiveness has changed you. It has. I'm not what the same. What were you before and what are you now? I'm not the same person I was 19 years ago. I think I'm much more compassionate when I see on the uh, evening, yeah. when I see the evening news and I see a plane has... Uh, crashed or a ferry has tumped, it doesn't leave me. I think I don't just say, oh, that's too bad. Last summer, when the more tornadoes hit the Plaza Tower Elementary School in, in Oklahoma, I was crushed. I fell to my knees. I cried. I wept. I got in my car. I went to more. Mm. I went to many of those children's funerals. I wanted to offer that same hope 
to those families that John Walsh had offered me. I wanted them to know that they could survive. I, I also, I'm an artist by trade. I believe in using your gifts to But there's back. a difference between an act of God and an act of humanity. You know, with, with, with Terry, it was just evil. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when these acts of God happen, we, we, we're told that they are a test. When you refer to the tornado. act of God, the tornado. Yeah. yeah. So you were going there from, from what perspective? As, as a, some sort of a missionary? or, or I was going there as a broken-hearted grandmother that knew what it's like to bury your child. And I wanted to offer hope to those people. That's why when the planes first, the day the planes started flying after 9-11, I went to New York. It was important to me to offer them hope. Now, when you go to New York, do people know you're coming or you just land up at the scene itself? Uh, No, uh, Larry Jones of Feed the Children was there. He's Mm -hmm. a friend of mine. the, the Today Show actually called me and asked me if I would be willing to come do an interview with them. And uh, and I said that I would. And when I talked with Larry, he I told him I was coming because I need you. Get here. And I went to the firehouses. I spoke at churches where people were waiting to find out the fate of their lost loved ones. When you lose a child or a grandchild and... You're part of this exclusive club that only people that have suffered that great loss understand. And I wanted to be able to minister and help those people. Now, your book is an extreme story. Yes. Are you prepared for extreme feedback? When when did it come out, by the way? It came out on April the 8th. And yes, I am prepared for extreme Have you had extreme feedback? feedback? No, I went uh, just a few nights ago. I went to my first book signing there mm-hmm. in Oklahoma, and I was joking with my husband. I said, I hope no one shows up throwing shoes at me like they had right. Hillary Clinton. Uh, and I was prepared. I mean, that, that certainly could happen. That's why I want to stress I don't judge anybody. If you don't forgive, I understand that. This is just my story, and this is how I handled it. Because the way I see this book going, when people start reading and you start getting reviews, you're either going to be branded as a saint or stupid. Well, let me tell you, I've had people say, this is extraordinary what you've done. It is extraordinary, but extraordinary but, goes both but, ways. But it's it's really not. I'm just a normal, everyday person mm-hmm. that something extraordinary happened to. And it's just what you do with that. You know, you hear... Uh, that phrase that time heals all things. Right. Well, time doesn't heal anything. It's what you do with that time that brings healing. Where do you go from here now, now that the book is out? Uh, I hope that I can continue uh, sharing my story. I hope that it's life-changing. You know, we all need to learn to forgive. It's something we need to incorporate in our everyday lives. Don't we all know sisters who haven't spoken in years because they're offended toward each other? Or how about the spouses, that the ex-spouses that can't possibly say anything nice about their ex, even though they know they're damaging their children? We need to learn to forgive. It makes our lives better. It makes our country better. It makes us better people. And where can we get the book? 
you can get the book anywhere that books are sold. Thank you for coming on the show, Kathy. Thank you so much for having me. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. I would love to get your comments on my conversation with Kathy and your opinion on what forgiveness means to you. Your comments and your follow are so very welcome on my Twitter account at Vip Jaswell and my Facebook page, The Vip Jaswell Report. A special shout-out of thanks to my dream team, Rick Buser and Danao Williams. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern with more fascinating stories that fill our lives with the inspiration and information we so need to kickstart the week. I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your family and loved ones and until next Sunday have a productive and a happy week ahead.